Hello, my name is Federico Toledo and welcome to the Quality Sense podcast, where you will have the chance to improve your sense for quality by listening to some leaders who are amazing at what they do in the software industry. In each show, I have a one-on-one -on -one chat with them discussing specific topics related to software testing and quality. Today in this episode, I'll share the interview with Eric Progler. He has over 20 years of experience in software, mostly split between performance testing and managing testers. He's currently a staff test engineer at Credit Karma here in San Francisco. He's organizer of Whopper, the workshop on performance and reliability, and he is the president of the Association for Software Testing. Eric was one of the first testing gurus I met when I first came to California seven years ago. I had the chance to see amazing talks he has given, and I always learn a lot from him. This is why I'm so happy to share this interview with all of you. If anyone needs recommendations about good places to, to visit in, in a night in San Francisco, I think here we have the men <laughs> with the answers. <laughs> well, so. it's, it's really nice to get the chance to talk to you under any circumstances, Frederick. <laughs> cool. So to start, can you tell me how did you end up in, in software testing? I know you have a story behind that. Yeah, so um, in 1998, I was working for the Indiana State Department of Health on a uh, migration of an immunization tracking system. That was my first real programming job, was to work on this immunization system. You know, basically the kind where uh, your kid gets shots and then you have to make sure that those are registered so that you can get into school and that kind of thing. And uh, so I, I was doing the programming and it was, you know, it was okay. I mean, it's a lot of sitting there and staring at screens and trying to get into the zone. And then I got to this part where I was trying to test this function where you would upload your results, um, you know, all the new shots you'd given that day, and then you would upload them to a central store so that the state could have, a, have an index. So it turned into this whole thing about assessing how these shots that were given got uploaded to a central data store. At the same time, the, the program we had was supposed to like marks to kids as like ready to go or not based on certain kinds of logic had they had all the right shots. And some of these shots, like their combinations, like you can get three of them at once if you're three months old, or it, you might have gotten only gotten two of them when you were two months old. So it was super complicated to figure out how all this came together. And I spent like maybe a week trying to sketch out all the different combinations for how this went. It was the most fun I'd had programming. And that's when I realized that I really enjoyed testing more than I enjoyed like, working in the code mine. That's, I was probably destined to be a tester since that's what I enjoyed the most. But that's when professionally I left coding full time and became a tester. The, the one who thinks that testing is something easy, it's because he's doing it in a very wrong way, right? Or very shallow confirmatory testing. Like I did exactly what I was supposed to do and the system did not explode in my hands. Ship it. And I still am finding people like that. I, find, I still find people who are years into a, so a career in software who still see testing that way. I think, uh, I think there, there's this essay I read called Everything is Broken, and it was written by um, a security researcher. But the thing that stuck with me is uh, from that essay was 
that almost all software ships the moment it doesn't obviously break or something along <laughs> those lines. Because by, yeah, by the time software ships, everyone's tired of it. They want to be working on something else. And there's a lot of pressure to, you know, to, to make money with it. Yeah. It's not making you any money while you're testing it. And yeah, those business drivers make sense. But This is a great introduction to the topic we wanted to address, which is related to an, an article uh, that you spoke not long ago with a journalist. It, it was related to the obligations of software professionals in making and testing critical systems. And the article starts with a very interesting question, which is, who is making sure airplanes are safe? Mm -hmm. This is kind of scary, but <laughs> just, think about, just, just think about it. But uh, can, can you summarize or, or oh, tell sure. me? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I like airline examples and a lot of people who work in testing like them because they're a way to, you know, laugh at ourselves when we claim we're doing engineering. I was, uh, so I was, I was actually at Test Bash. Um, I did a, a, in San Francisco. And I, and I get this this connection on LinkedIn. I'm like, oh, it's somebody you know who's just saw me talk at the conference. And I look at it, and it's this just journalist person. And it turns out she was writing an article about what the um, certification process for uh, for airplanes is like, because uh, of the 737, the, uh, the the Boeing 737 Max issue that had come up in, I guess it would be 2018 first, and then it became serious sometime early in 2019, and they shut down the line for a while. They grounded a bunch of planes, and it was a pretty big deal. But essentially, there was a, a, a software there was a software bug that um, would cause an air, the airplane to um, behave in an unsafe way. What struck me is not so much the details of how it happened, but the fact that when I was reading about what the software was supposed to do, It, it was at the point where the software was necessary for the plane to properly fly. Like there, there's something about the way that they had the control surfaces of the plane were, were working that um, the software was needed to correct for it. Like they were getting farther and farther away from the idea that you know, a pilot could flip a switch to manual and just fly a plane. I think it's one of the reasons why airplanes are safe is that there is a trained person who doesn't need the software who can operate the plane if necessary. So I, I so I talked to her about this, and what she actually was really wanted to ask me about was um, the process of doing some sort of software certification. Of, you know, how do we make sure that this is working? So it turns out that in, uh, in, in at least in the American airline industry, that it's a bit like other regulated industries I've worked in, like pharma, where uh, the regulator actually doesn't. The regulator, meaning the government agency. Um, just has this list of requirements for documentation and things you have to sign off on to say things work. And that's supposed to just make quality happen somehow. Like if you hand over the, a big giant stack of paper that says we did all of these things, then it must work. And as opposed to any sort of um, deep, deeper examination of the software, looking for ways it could fail. And one of the things that came out of that conversation I thought was pretty interesting was that it was not really in Boeing's interest to find a problem other than to avoid future liability and, you know, not kill people. But if they were trying to get something to market, um, the time they were spending testing the software was time they weren't selling. And that was very much like what my, what my day job felt like at that time, where there was a lot of pressure to get things onto the market. We were talking about the idea of some sort of independent verifier of software. Like, uh, in, like in, the, in the U.S., we have this thing called um, the UL Labs, where they used to certify that all of these... Um, 
uh, electrical appliances had been properly examined to be safe and unlikely to burn down your house and things like that. Could such a thing exist for software? But today there is nothing like this running or? I think that there are people who buy, who, who will buy something like, hey, I brought in this consulting firm and they tested our software and they said it was all good. So look, I did what I was supposed to do. But it's, you know, are they managing liability or are they trying to do everything they can to make sure the software works correctly? And I got to the point with, when, when I was working in, regulated, in one regulated context where I would tell my team that we were delivering the part of the product that was necessary to sell in that industry, which was a big stack of paper. Like without this big stack of paper, the customers weren't allowed to buy the software. So we had to do that as part of the product delivery. Oh, okay. So we, so we avoided a lot of angst about whether we were properly testing because we did that before, after we got some confidence, then we would generate this paper. But the process of generating the paper did not produce much confidence because it was, it was this matter of very uh, prescriptive uh, test steps. I did X, then Y, then Z and saw the, saw the expected result. That was what was in the paperwork. But I haven't found that kind of testing to be as helpful for me in building confidence that software is working correctly. I kind of need to challenge software and maybe even take an adversarial approach to see if I can trick it. Do you think, is there any type of coverage that can be useful as a metric to measure the, the, the quality of our testing? But I don't think one measurement is sufficient. Like I do think about coverage when I think about how I would assess you know, how, what kind of testing we've done. Have we covered um, as many of the common use cases as we can? Have we covered as many of the functions of the system as we can? That, that's definitely a way to think about have I done enough testing? But I, don't, I think that uh, any approach like uh, I have this percentage covered by unit tests, I do this many, uh, yeah, this percentage of lines of code are, have been you know, touched by automation I've done. I think that, that that's like a measurement at one place. And I think when I talk about, when I think about designing a test strategy, um, security has this great idea of like layers that I have this kind of testing and I have this kind of testing and I have this kind of testing. And if I design them really well, it's not a straight vertical stack of doing the same thing over and over again and proving that, yep, I can still fuck the happy path means I'm looking at for different kinds of risks and different kinds of tests. But getting things right on things like on stuff like unit tests or um, regression frameworks frees up people to find really interesting, really interesting uh, stuff. So that's, it's kind of frustrating to hear like, you know, manual or automated. Yeah, that's a stupid, that's a stupid discussion. You need both. And if, and actually I'm more interested in how clever are you are, are, are you and making sure that you're, getting better coverage by spreading those resources out in a way to uh, reduce your exposure. Another thing it, it's related to what's the quality that we need, because the quality is the, the sum of different factors, right? Accessibility, functionality, performance, uh, security, different things. Depending on the context, one is more important than the other. So how can we combine this idea of the regulations with the context-driven approach? Is there well, a so, so the true, the true context-driven uh, roots that I really um, aligned with, and when, when I first heard them, they like said out loud better everything I'd ever thought about testing, were basically saying to adapt the testing you were doing to the circumstances that you find yourself in. So I believe a true context-driven tester who was testing an airplane would have a very methodical, uh, very thorough approach to how they would test. 
and that the point of context-driven testing is that you find practices that suit the context that you're in and you do those as opposed to um, believing that there's one approach to testing that works for uh, many different contexts. Like the testing, the, the, there's stuff I do now where there's A-B testing with users and because there's, we have millions of them and we'll show 1% of them something and see if it works or not. That's a very different context than an airplane where there's, you know, there's no 1% experiment on an airplane. Like it just has to be right. I think that um, context-driven testing has gotten this rap as being like anti-automation, which I don't think is necessarily true, but a lot of the rhetoric that's come out around it does seem to be pushing back on claims made about automation. I'm trying to find the right place in the middle of, yeah, tool-assisted testing is awesome, and test automation uh, make, does make it so I can spend less time doing shallow testing and I can come up with more interesting testing. I'd like to make a short pause to thank Abstracta for sponsoring this podcast. Abstracta is a company fully dedicated to software testing that can work with you to push the quality of your product and processes to the next level. So there's a project I looked at lately that was to do contact tra tracing. Or like, you know, one of these ideas, like they want to make this framework where Uh, they keep track of everyone you come and you cut you you come within three feet of with your mobile phone. You know, you, they can we can use that for contact tracing if somebody tests positive for the virus because you know we all want to get out of our house and you know be able to have beers in person, right? Yeah. <laughs> But it's the wild west. Like there is no actual standard for that. Um, when some somebody somebody came on to Twitter and said, "Hey, we're making this thing. We would like some help testing it." And um, in, the area, in, the, in the corner of the testing world I'm in, people just jumped on to gripe with them about how they weren't thinking about privacy enough. And they were legitimate, they were legitimate criticisms. I think the project was pretty naive about their privacy concerns. But I don't think that helped that project any to just be told, yeah, you suck. <laughs> no, <that's> well, <laughs> what exactly should we do? <laughs> And who, who should pay attention to that? Well, I mean, that's, that's a good question, right? Like if there was, if we're talking about something like, like um, an airplane, there's a standard you have to meet where the FAA signs off on your airplane. And you can't sell any until you have it. But once you have it, you can sell airplanes basically anywhere in the world because so many other uh, countries accept the FAA's approval as sufficient or have minimal requirements in addition to it. So think about it that way. If I want, if like if if the Elon Musk of airplanes shows up, you're going to have a pretty hard time getting through all of that. And that's just building the capacity to generate the giant stack of paper, right? What would I tell them about what they need to do to? You know, these are all the things you need to test to be able to you know, ship your product. You would t it would take hundreds of people along, you know, you know, probably a couple of years to just to define that program, right? Does that mean enough testing happened? I mean, enough paper generation happened. What I would want to know is, that what, would I, what, what do we tell people who are consumers of software about how to figure out whether software is any good or not? This is a huge problem. If you think about like a, like a government project um, that's going to touch the lives of, in the U.S., it's 335 million people. How, what, what, what shopping tools can I give somebody You know, who, who's, who, who doesn't work in software every day to find out whether software is any good or not. And yeah, I mean, yeah, hire an expert. Um, my hour, I can give you my early rate if you want it. But uh, 
how would you go about setting policy about these things? How would you go about making a informed decision about buying something? You know, part of the reason I got the, 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 the time, the first time I really engaged with this was um, went to cast in 2014. I saw two talks there that just blew my mind. The first one was James Christie from Scotland show, uh, came and he started talking about the concept of um, using certification and uh regulations around the kind of software testing that you did as a way to limit competitiveness, as a way to have an advantage. Um, there, there's the term rent seeking got used, which, you know, it's, it's pretty accusatory. Uh, set that aside for a moment, but regulatory capture was the part I thought was interesting. You know, here in America, we have the best government money. We have the best government money can buy. So we, when there's a big project, it's the usual suspects who get to carve up that carve up the big, uh, you know, the, the big, you know, the big allocation of money for a project. That leads me to the second talk I saw at Cast uh, 2014 in New York, which was Ben Simo. He was talking about how he had been attempting to use the newly launched healthcare.gov website to try to get insurance for his children and grandchildren, and that the process of testing that you know it, it was a, you know, it, it's it's been a few years now, but it's one of those big face plants uh, in soft quality history where the system came out that was going to change many people's lives and how they bought healthcare. And it, it was crashing all over the place. It was a big mess. And it had been a matter of a federal contractor. You know, one of the usual ones had come onto this job. There were layers and layers and layers of subcontractors. And there were people running that project who didn't know software and were going to make the date no matter what. And, the results are actually fairly predictable. We know all that as to what happened. We, we already have software um, having such a huge impact on our lives, uh, whether, it's, uh, whether it's airplanes, whether it's, I think a lot about the, um, the algorithms that trade stocks and how they've um, affected the market and hurt people's retirements and things like that. Uh, how uh, there are now all these circuit breakers that turn off the market because people are scared about an algorithm that goes rogue and starts, you know, buying stock and selling it automatically before anyone knows what's happening. And we don't even have the robots yet. So, like, what are we <laughs> going to do about so What are we going to do about this? How are we going to engage with the problem of software quality uh, in a meaningful way to set public policy and to help people make decisions? Yeah, what, what you're talking made me also remember more, you know, when, when you sign up, in a web page for something or a service or whatever you are using, mm -hmm. you put a username and password, you forget your password and you ask to recover that and they send you your password plain in plain text to your email, right? <laughs> right. So this is a very silly example, but I've seen, I, I've seen it many times. So, and I understand there is a risk associated with that because I am a computer engineer, but I, I know that most of the people, uh, they, they don't see any problem about that. Okay, I have my password, I can access again. But they wouldn't notice. I mean, yeah. it takes, a, it takes a, a, a computer professional to even realize that it's being sent in play there. Everyone else is like, oh, that's cool, I can copy and paste it now, thank you. <laughs> exactly. So, and like this, there are so many things that we are facing, like a lot of problems related to the software. And in some cases, the users uh, realize about the problems or the risks and in some other cases we live with that and we don't know there is a problem with that we need more education for the users for the people in general 
uh, about the, the risks associated to the software in order to be better consumers, in order to make better decisions that will force in the future the companies to develop with better quality, right? I mean, we're hoping. I, mean, I remember a time when a breach of user data was considered a potentially company-ending event, and that was not that long ago. And now there have been breaches from almost every major online retailer, banks, places like that. Like, I don't even want to go look where my accounts might be compromised, but it's, it, I'm sure it's multiple times my information has been spilled. And no weird charges have showed up on my, cre on my credit report. That's the best I can do. Because otherwise I would be chasing after one breach after another constantly. People are just getting comfortable with living in a world where everything's pretty much broken, at least a little. You mean Talking. that the, the, the user accepts, you need to review your machine, <laughs> or you, you, you get used to that, right? Well, so, so the people who learn how to operate these systems, you know, digital natives, you got young people who are grew up this way, they learn, oh, I reboot this, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And that's just like how things work. They've, they've come to terms with that. Um, there are people who are less technically savvy, are more frustrated, and they're stuck. Like every 18 months, I need to re-image re my mom's computer because she's installed so much adware and games that it stops working. And I tell her where it comes from and it still happens. <laughs> but and the thing is, is that I'm, I'm, I'm privileged because I work in tech and I work and I most of every, basically everyone I know, I know from work or from you know, professional associations and things like that. So I, I basically know, just about everybody I know is technically savvy. That's not what most of the world is. Most of the world is not able to debug a, a web browser not working. And restarting the web browser and cleaning the cookies would be like something they wouldn't know how to do. Someone would have to walk them through it. Yeah. But we, we have, you know, I, I still, in my professional life, have um, seen lots of bugs just sit in the backlog that could be solved by flushing your cookies, so we're not going to fix it. And there is another thing related to the startup culture, which is that you shouldn't be proud of your product because if you are proud of your product, you released it too late. You spent, you spent too much time on it. You fell in love with your own code or the smell of your own farts or whatever. You spent <laughs> all this time trying to make something perfect when it should have been out making you money two months ago. What's the problem? Yeah. And, and that's, and so that, that approach to delivering technology bleeds over though. Like the example of Uber, like, they're, they were just like, went into business in cities without talking to the local government there. And we're like, regulate us if you dare, whatever, we're doing this now. And then, you know, hiding that from governments to get things done. I mean, not everything in life is um, something waiting for a 25-year-old to optimize with software. But the, the, the majority of the, the financial power is put um, in software is pushing towards that. Like, do the minimum possible, get this out. It's okay if it's a little bit crappy. Well, you know, I, I went downstairs and bought like expensive beer to have with my friend Federico. I didn't buy Budweiser. Not everything should be Budweiser. Sometimes I want to buy a good beer. Is there software made for people like me who feel that way where I'm willing to pay for a little bit of quality? Doesn't feel like it. Yeah. So Eric, I think we could continue talking about this for hours. Uh, <laughs> I think I, I, I will move on to the final questions I have for you. Sure. What habits do you have uh, that you can suggest people to adopt or maybe to avoid? Yeah, so I think that for testers, 
I would say that you should learn how to um, disagree politely and then also learn when you're going to have to let it go. Because there are going to be times where um, you'll, you'll describe a risk uh, very perfectly and, and, and explain what the, what the potential downside is and people will still choose to take that risk. And earlier in my career, I was very emotionally involved in that. I would get super pissed off when people would, would not take my bug seriously and it made my life difficult. And I, I, I've, I'm less stressed now that I've learned, you know, Hey, I reported it. My, my test report is awesome. I did a great job and then not be, not be invested in what happens to that bug. I, I really like you mentioned that because I, I was talking a couple of days ago with someone in our team and he was asking, should I try to be politically correct all the time? Should I be formal in the way I communicate? And no, somewhat, if it helps. <laughs> yeah, but it's also related to how you make feel the other person. It's like having empathy or respect for the other person. It's like uh, paying attention to the way you communicate. This is a professionalism thing, I think. If you're a software tester, there are a couple things that you're charged with. One of them is to... Uh, be a really excellent communicator about what you know, what you fear, what you've done to address what you fear, what you think, what you would, what you would do if you had more time to test. Being able to explain all those things well as being a professional, doing it in a way that that's not insulting or um, upsetting to the people that you work with is part. Of, it's part kind of being a good human. And it's kind of being a professional because once you piss people off, they don't listen to you. Yeah. However, it's another. It's, the reason you're there is somewhat adversarial. You are supposed to, to think of the things that the rest of the team has not thought of yet. You're going to have to, to share ideas that the, other team, that the rest of the team might not like. So your, pre your presentation is super important. You said politically correct, and I was dismissive of that. Like, I think that I was wrong because um, you know, the idea with politically correct is just you know, to treat people with respect and, with, and to have good manners. And I think that you should be doing that. But you shouldn't be afraid to say, I don't agree with the thing that you said. I think the assertion that we're ready is incorrect, and here's why. Just make sure you always have the, and here's why. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mean don't say what you really believe, but right. it's the way you say it. Well, one of the things I do is I work with a nonprofit organization, the Association of Software Testing. Mm -hmm. And our constituents are software testers, and they are uh, very opinionated. But the, the most, to be honest, the only time I've ever, I've ever really been disappointed is when I say something like, this whole experience is terrible, this software is awful, and it's not, and it's because that's not actionable, what you just told me, and it's not being a very good tester to just say, this all sucks. I can't turn in a test report that says, this all sucks. <laughs> I have to be able to say a little bit more than that. So when I see, like, software, or, or software testers who have one bad experience and then tell everybody how crappy this, this thing is. Well, we live in bugs all day. We swim in them. We can't overreact to them and decide they, you know. Do you have any book to recommend? Well, the, the book that made me feel like I could, like testing wasn't completely full of itself was Lessons Learned in Software Testing. Because everything I'd read about testing up to that point was all about formalized quality and said things about quality that I just knew was bullshit. Like this, uh, this idea that I would have, I would sit down and I would write 
my 172 test cases and that would be exactly all I needed to do. Like I just knew that that was wrong. I knew that it wasn't uh, supportable when there's you know, maintenance happening to code and things like this. And then I read that book and that's probably why I'm still so, still call myself context driven is because that kind of thinking about testing really opened up my mind to like what I was supposed to be accomplishing, which was to reveal the characteristics of the thing that I'm testing, not own the quality, not be the gatekeeper, not ruin everybody's day. <laughs> like, <laughs> Excellent. Uh, is there anything you, you'd like to invite the listeners to do? Uh, but the, the majority of the work, the, the work I do, uh, the professional work I do outside of my day job these days is for the Association for Software Testing. There are not many nonprofits that work in, that in our area and we're, we're run by testers, for testers, uh, but we're like this little tiny nonprofit just trying to figure out how we can help, you know, help people be better testers and uh, provide some education like uh, the Black Box Software Testing courses to help people uh, connect with other testers and become better testers. So that might be something to look at. Excellent. I will include the, the link to the Association of Software Testing. I mentioned Test Automation University earlier. I have not seen a better resource for finding your footing. I do know that basically every tester I ever talk to feels they need to know more about automation. Whether that's true or not, uh, <laughs> that is where I would, that's where I would send them to, to learn more about how to do it and how to think about it. Excellent. Thank you so much, Eric. I really enjoyed talking with you. And That's great to talk with you, Pedro. See you soon. Bye. I hope your sense for quality got better after this conversation. Thank you so much for listening. And please subscribe to Quality Sense Podcast. Tell your friends, your family, your colleagues, or whoever you think can benefit from listening to it. I hope to see you soon. Adios, amigos.